According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Not sure how long we'll go this morning, but as long as my health holds up, I guess, we'll go the whole hour. John chapter 2, the last part of this chapter, three short verses, and then we move on into chapter 3. Dealing with his reception at Jerusalem, followed by his ministry to Nicodemus. Chapter 3. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer and ask the Father to sanctify our thinking, shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the privilege and blessing we have to assemble together, and we thank you for these brothers and sisters in Christ here this morning that have been the recipients of your grace and allowed to be here. We thank you for the finances, the transportation, the health, the work schedule, everything else that you've lined up that's allowed us to be here this morning to receive instruction. We ask now, Father, that you would hedge us about with your protection, set aside distractions, open the eyes of our understanding, and we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we uh, last week, or spent the last couple of weeks, detailing the events of the uh, cleansing of the temple here in John chapter 2, and I won't go back into those issues there. Uh, other than to uh, focus on the zeal that we find in verse 17 and to uh, comment that this is what we had been dealing with in terms of jealousy as a part of God's personality. The, in fact, the vocabulary is identical. The concepts are identical. Both Old Testament and New Testament, the teaching on God's jealousy, his jealousy for himself produces his zeal, uh, as an expression, if you want to think of jealousy as a motivating virtue and zeal as a functional virtue, you can think of it in those terms. We likewise should have a zeal. And unfortunately, I think it's too sad that we, um, we, we, hedge, we hedge against that, we guard against that. We don't want to be seen as too emotional or too charismatic or too what have you, see. But in reality, if we do love the Lord, then we should desire to serve Him. And if the uh, intensity of our jealousy is such that it motivates a zealousness. The scripture doesn't uh, rebuke that, doesn't uh, uh, have any negative comment about that, and only positive uh, portrayals of those that are zealous. But you've got to be zealous with teaching, and that's the very important thing. As Paul deals with, uh, he bears witness to his brethren, the Jews and Romans, and he says they have a zeal, but it's not in accordance with knowledge. And the the terrible trouble of immature believers who get sidetracked in their enthusiasm and they have all this zeal, but it's not in accordance with knowledge. So I hope in the gaining of knowledge, we don't set aside the zeal. (laughs) We like to be able to have both. We want to accumulate knowledge and at the same time to develop a more thorough passion for the one who loved us and gave himself for us. In any event, that uh, ties together the last of these details here. They, they wanted a sign in verse 18. The Jews then said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? And the very last point of study we gave you in, uh, I don't have a slide this morning, but they wanted a sign. What they needed was salvation. They needed to be saved, and the only sign he was going to give them was the witness of the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And these are unbelievers that are in need of faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. As we recognize from verse 22, when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed 
the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Now we move on to verses 23 through 25 with respect to these folks. When This is uh, an interesting observation that's made in verse 23. When he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, and you recall, of course, there was he got there ahead of the Passover and he drove all these guys out. Then the Passover takes place, a very solemn Sabbath day. But then following the Passover comes what? comes the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. We have seven more days of of rejoicing and seven more days of observation. And during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. So he has an additional ministry beyond simply driving out these money changers and observing Passover. In the week following, then he has a teaching ministry and accompanied with that teaching were the signs that are mentioned here in verse 23. There's really only three things I'm going to observe out of this paragraph. Let me just read the rest of it now. Uh, When he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. All right, this is the entirety of the last section here with respect to a whole crowd of people that would have been very anxious to not only believe in him and start following him from this day forward, but even go beyond what the will of God the Father would be and rush to put him on a throne, rush to lift him up, rush to to, uh, attack the Romans and all the rest. And we'll see more of this, I think, in in the upcoming chapters, chapter 6 especially, and chapter 7 features a bit of this. Three things we want to glean out of these verses. First of all, Jesus performed no signs for the adversaries. They, they demanded, show us a sign. He says, you're not getting one. <laughs> the only sign you guys are getting is the sign of Jonah. In other words, the death, burial, and resurrection. I'm going to raise again on the third day. But he performed a variety of other signs for the benefit of other observers. Not the adversaries, but the observers, as we see them here. And it's quite fascinating, the, the crowds, as it were. And uh, there's a whole realm of teaching we could go into as it pertains to the crowds, as it pertains to the hoi polloi and, and so forth. And scripture is sometimes very, um, not very flattering with respect to the crowds. See, but it's interesting because these guys are our witnesses. These guys are observers. And in some senses, they're very positive. And in other senses, they're very negative. And in some senses, they're really, they don't care one way or the other so long as they're entertained. See, if they can play a flute or play a dirge and expect these people to sing and dance and march to their tunes, then they're okay with it. We're going to deal with a lot of this because when the Passion Week approaches and Jesus is ministering, in John 7 is a passage we'll look at here shortly, and the crowds are kind of amazed because they know that the Sanhedrin is trying to put this guy to death, and yet here he is teaching, and and they're kind of seeing both sides of it and recognizing that uh, something big is about to happen. All right, these crowds are something else. We'll deal with these crowds here in a moment. He does perform a variety of other signs, as indicated, observing his signs, plural, which he was doing. But the signs, you remember, are not given for the gee whiz factor of, look at me, I can do miracles. They're given as the credentials of the divine authenticity so that they will then listen to the message. And uh, verse 22 highlights that uh, they believed the scripture. See, it's the message, the word which Jesus had spoken. The sign were the credentials, but the message 
is what was important. And so they believe. And so they believe. Second thing we want to glean out of this. The evidence of these things seen prompted a faith reaction on the part of many. The evidence of these things seen prompted a faith reaction on the part of many. We're not told how many. It's just paloe. It's many. John 2.23 The evidence of these things seen. And I phrased it that way in particular so that it will contrast with Hebrews 11 when we talk about faith being the evidence of things not seen. But this now is the evidence of these things seen. In other words, he's performing signs. And on the evidence of these things seen, believers now, or these folks with a positive volition, are able to react on the basis of faith. And we don't dispute that. Because we have pistuo in verse 23. They are responding on the basis of faith. It's the same vocabulary that the disciples exhibit in verse 22. So we recognize that we have believers in this context that are reacting positively to the, uh, to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to the miracles that he's performing. That's not the case across the board. As we're going to get into chapter 3, we're going to recognize that the Pharisees likewise had evidence of things seen. And they couldn't dispute the miracles. All right? And if I can cheat and get ahead of myself a little bit, uh, in verse 2, Nicodemus came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these things, these signs that you do unless God is with him. All right? They also had the evidence of things seen. But theirs, for the most part, for most of the Pharisees, was not a faith reaction. All right? For Nicodemus, it was. For Nicodemus, he came to get his answers. He came to get his divided mind settled. He came to, to uh, believe in Jesus Christ. But for most of the Pharisees, they did not. All right? And so, again, we find that there's a huge difference between just simply watching a miracle and placing your faith in the content of a message, which is the whole point of the miracle, so that you recognize the divine authenticity of that message, so that you will receive it not as the word of man, but as the word of God. Nicodemus was able to do so, able to overcome his pharisaical arrogance, pride, prejudice, and all the rest. Many in the crowd here were able to do so also. When you think of paloi, it's, it's in the phrase hoi paloi, it's just simply the many, the masses, the crowds. All right? Paloi, uh, palus, uh, many of our poly prefixes in the English, like polygamy, many women, many wives, is polygamy. If you think of poly, it's got to be more, what are the poly words do we have in the English? Polygram, polygraph, okay, there's a lot of poly words. But I've got to think of more than just simply polygamy. <laughs> For whatever reason, the first one that jumps out of my mind for some reason. All right. But now here's the many. Okay. So does this mean that, that, uh, that the Jerusalem ministry here of Jesus Christ is a rousing success because of the numbers that were coming in? Is he going to gauge his ministry based upon the numbers? No. And um, we're going to see a steady pattern of growth where... Up to even 5,000 are going to be assembled at a single time. He's going to feed the multitudes and so forth. But then we're going to see a steady decline where it drops to 12, (laughs) where it drops to 11 when he goes out to betray him, when it drops to three, when only Peter, James, and John will join him in the garden for prayer, and then when it drops to zero 
when they all scatter and he goes to his trials and he goes to the cross. All right. So it's not the numbers that becomes the emphasis. Now, subpoint A, faith does not require such things seen. Faith does not require such things seen. Hebrews 11 in verse 1. And as we've already stipulated from glancing over to chapter 3, such things seen does not necessarily mean that faith will be the response. Because such things seen can produce a counter reaction. Pride can look at such things and reject them. As in the case of the Pharisees. <clears throat> what's, what's remarkable, and, and we'll have more teaching on this. We're going to give an introduction to the Pharisees this morning. But the, these hoi polloi, the crowds, are so featured so prominently in every interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees. And I don't think that's accidental. Because it was the very crowds that were the power base for the Pharisees. It was the very crowds that was the source of their popularity, that was the source of their influence. The reason why the Pharisee party was able to ascend to dominance within the Sanhedrin in itself. And at this period of time, the Pharisees are the dominant party in the Sanhedrin. Even though they really, by birth, they would have, they wouldn't be entitled to that. See, they weren't priests, they weren't Levites, alright. Most of them were in the Sadducee party, but they were scholars they were scribes they had learned the law they had learned the word and by virtue of their wisdom by virtue of their scholarship their knowledge their in some cases human effort they had attained to a position where they were able to first of all compete with the priests and even uh overcome the priests we'll deal with more of that when we come to the the introduction of the pharisees but um much of their power was dependent upon the people. And when Jesus Christ started to uh, draw followers from among the people, the Pharisees then became threatened. Of course, pride and selfishness doesn't want to give away those kind of things. <laughs> All right. Hebrews chapter 11. Are we familiar with Hebrews 11? The Hall of Fame of Faith. We were here uh, Sunday morning looking at Abel. And the faith that he uh, exercised when he brought forth the animal offering. But the definition of faith in verse 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. See, actually seeing things is not necessary for faith. We can continue to have faith regardless of what we see in the human realm because we have trust in the divine realm. See, it's not a blind faith. It doesn't mean that we just hope in nothing and we just trust that everything's going to work out for the best. That's a blind faith and the world will mock us and say, well, we're just proceeding on blind faith. Not so. We're proceeding on things that may in fact be unseen in human terms, but they're clearly seen with spiritual eyes because faith is grounded always in an object, in the confidence of God's word. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So, when you think of things not seen, you recognize that that is not seen in the earthly realm, not seen in the human realm, but very clearly seen with divine viewpoint perspective. For by faith we understand the, war, the ages were prepared by the word of God. Now, I, I wasn't around to see any of that physically, but I can see it spiritually because the word of God reveals how these things function. So faith does not require such things to be seen. And in so many respects... Um, this kind of approach is kind of a uh, 
an immature approach in a lot of ways. A baby believer uh, who doesn't have a lot of strength to his faith, doesn't have a lot of uh, 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 maturity. Oftentimes, you know, God's faithful and he does things to where they can see an answer to prayer, where a baby believer can see how prayer has worked in a circumstance. They can see how provision has been made. They have a, a visible reassurance of, of his faithfulness and, and that strengthens their faith. See, and I think that God's very um, patient <laughs> with with each one of us as we grow up, as we see some certain things. And so uh, in a lot of ways, there's uh, there's a real blessing associated with that. But does that mean that we always have to see such things? No. And the older we get in the Lord, the less dependent we ought to become on actually seeing things happen. We ought to be more to where we are walking by faith and not by sight, to where we can trust in him, even though we haven't yet seen how his plan is coming forth. And that's under point B. Faith apart from seeing is a greater blessedness. Faith apart from seeing is a greater blessedness. This is where we just stay faithful until death. This is where we say, though the Lord slay me, yet will I trust in him. This is where, as we have it here in Hebrews 11, before I even turn back to John 20, we have it here in Hebrews 11. It's pointed out that um, in verse 13, all these died in faith without receiving the promises. Every Old Testament saint that was placing their faith in the coming Messiah died without physically seeing the coming Messiah. Abraham never got to see the birth of the humanity of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross and the redemption of Israel. and never got to see any of that physically in earthly terms, but he saw it oh so clearly in spiritual terms. All right, because it says uh, they died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance. Anyway, there's a lot of things that approach these aspects. Now, back to John 20, as Christ gives the, um, the blessedness or the happiness of such a circumstance where you don't have to necessarily see the miracle. And here's uh, formerly doubting Thomas in John chapter 20. And uh, at first he said he wouldn't believe unless he, uh, in verse 25, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And then Jesus shows up and says, okay, here I am, start poking. (laughs) And Thomas Nope, he doesn't even poke. He says, uh, my Lord and my God. All right, my Lord and my God. But now look at the content of the message. Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. An even greater blessedness or makarios joy, happiness. The maturity of a believer who sees by faith and doesn't have to, doesn't insist on seeing by sight, by earthly observation. He just sees it by faith. He trusts in the Lord. What a happiness. What a relaxed mental attitude. And that's what's being described here when he said, Blessed, blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. When you can have that kind of assurance, that kind of a mental attitude happiness, then uh, you have what the Lord's describing here. 
All right, the third thing we want to glean out of John 2. The Lord demonstrated a shrewdness in not drawing these miracle-observing believers into his inner circle of trust. The Lord demonstrated a shrewdness in not drawing these miracle-observing believers into his inner circle of trust. And here's a lot of discernment. Here's a lot of uh, a concept that really produces a great deal of application for you and I today because of the nature of the church age, because of the form of conflict that our stewardship um, is involved with in terms of imposters, in terms of infiltrators, things that we have to be on guard against as the tares grow up among the wheat to where we have to be shrewd ourselves. That's the Matthew 10:16 reference to be shrewd as serpents, yet harmless as doves. All right, and Jesus Christ exhibited a shrewdness as far as what he would be in, in willing to entrust himself to them. Okay, and it's the same verb pistuo, only now it's turned in terms of his direction towards them, and that's the aspect of an intimacy. That's the aspect of a trust. And we've got to be cautious about this. See, in a lot of ways. Jesus, on his part, on his part, this has reference to his mental attitude, his thinking, how he orients to them. We have similar language in places, for example, when it talks about peace, when it talks about you on your part, be at peace with all men. You can't control what the other person thinks. See, you may be able to exhibit sacrificial integrity, love. You may be able to have a relaxed mental attitude against your brother. He's got to hang up against you, right? And that produces a lot of friction. That produces mental attitude sin on their part. But you, for your part, see, be at peace with all. And you have this relaxed mental attitude. This phrase, on his part, shows that this is his thinking, his orientation and his mental attitude was not entrusting himself to them, See, they believed in him, Pistuo, but he's not going to Pistuo entrust himself to them. And this shows a, uh, a boundary. This shows a, a distance, as it were, that he would, obviously, um, he's not denying them salvation. He's not casting them out in that sense. But he is not embracing them into an intimacy such as he will have with the twelve, for example such as he will have with others, Lazarus, Lazarus, Mary, Martha, other believers that he will actually embrace in a much closer intimacy. Here, though, is a distance. We have this as a pattern. We have this as uh, an aspect that we can learn from. For he knew all men. Now, this is sometimes thought of in terms of omniscience. See, that uh, and, and if you read the commentaries on this, you're going to get all kinds of different approaches with respect to this, most of which view these people as um, unbelievers, which I find staggering because verse, 22, uh, verse 23 says they believed. All right. And yet they are they are believers and yet they're believers that he has to be cautious of. And I think if we can approach it on that basis, then we uh, can do fairly well. Is there somebody moving around out there? Oh, okay. Gary, you want to check it out? Thank you. All right. Now, this is not omniscience. 
All right. We've said this many times. It's not omniscience. Jesus Christ laid aside those privileges when he entered into humanity and when he uh, identified with you and I. If Jesus Christ exercises omniscience at any time in the course of his ministry, then he's not our substitute because he had to be tempted in all things, even as we are and yet without sin. See, if he had access to omniscience, then he wasn't tempted even as we are. There's plenty of times I would love to be able to tap into omniscience in any temptation I'm faced with. <laughs> It'd make it a lot easier to handle the temptation, wouldn't it? I'm struggling with a temptation. Well, I'll just tap into some omniscience here and I'll figure out what the answer is. And then, boom, easy test. Okay. Jesus Christ couldn't use omniscience in order to identify with each one of us. See, this is not omniscience, but this is a regular feature of a prophetic ministry. Of a prophet being able to know the people that he's encountering before he even meets them or to know their motivation and so forth. All right. And I think um, if I might even take a side trip with this. Uh, let's go back to Second uh, Kings. Let's go back to Second Kings and we'll find Elisha as a super example of this. And. Um. When uh, Naaman comes to him, all right, chapter five, this is a passage we were in recently with the teenagers. Quite a contrast here. There's a young servant slave girl in the first part of the chapter who's uh, a godly example and a, and a great uh, blessing by association for her Syrian master. And, uh, and then there's Gehazi, who is the contrast. <laughs> This young girl was a faithful servant, even though she had nothing to gain. And uh, Gehazi was an unfaithful servant trying to gain uh, in an unrighteous manner. And this was a passage we dealt with with our teenagers, trying to encourage them into the fact that even regardless of what age they are, even in, in their youth, they can have a ministry and they can be a blessing and they can bear fruit. and They can serve the Lord in a variety of different capacities. But now uh, in this miracle, and I won't read through the whole chapter, it'd take too long, but uh, Naaman is coming here. He's a, he's a leper and he, he's coming here for healing. And Elisha gives him instructions in verse 10, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored to you and you'll be clean. And this makes Naaman a little bit angry as we read in verse 11. And he wanted to see some hocus pocus, you know, some kind of mumbo jumbo. And he wanted to see this prophet wave, you know, wave his arms and in, do some kind of incantation and different things. And just kind of being dismissed from the waiting room and not even being allowed in kind of made him angry. And the servants in verse 13 And this is a key verse. If you ever want to use this concept in evangelism, it can be it can be effective. Servants came near and spoke to him and said, my father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more than when he says to you, wash and be clean? You know, if he would have assigned him some Herculean task or some great feat or something of massive human effort, Naaman would have jumped on it and gone forth and done it. And they said, why is it you reject this provision simply because it's so easy? All right. Some people really struggle because salvation's too easy. And they say, no, there's got to be something more than that. 
I have to be able to do something. I've got to quit this, quit that, give up this. I've got to be able to do something to contribute towards my salvation. You can, cut, you can use this passage and say, wait a minute. Why are you so willing to do what's hard and you're going to reject the easy message of just simply be washed and be cleaned in terms of believe in Jesus Christ and be saved? How easy is that? Now, after the miracle, he wants to offer a reward here to Elisha. And Elisha says, no, there's no charge. He says, I serve the Lord and uh, you can't pay me. I'm not here for the money. And... Uh, and these other things. And so he leaves. And Elisha said, no charge. Now here comes Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, in verse 20. And he thought, behold, my master has spared this name in the Aramean by not receiving from his hands what he brought. He's been out of shape because Elisha wouldn't take the reward. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and take something from him. So Gehazi pursued Naaman. And when Naaman saw one running after him, he came down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, All is well. My master has sent me, saying, Behold, just now, you know, you wouldn't believe this, but right after you left, two uh, young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothes. Now, this is a total lie. This is a, a fabrication entirely, but this is Gehazi jealous over the fact that Elisha wouldn't take any money for the miracle that he performed. And so he makes up this whole thing just now, right after you left. You wouldn't believe it. My master said, no, no charge for any of this. But the moment you left, boom, here come these guys and they need some help. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothes. And Naaman said, be pleased to take two talents. And he urged him and bound two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothes and gave them to two of his servants and they carried them before him. So the deception worked. It's kind of like Abraham, you know, his plan worked, but it didn't. Now here's uh, Gehazi, his plan worked, but it didn't. See, this is what happens when you work for a prophet. <laughs> All right. When he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and deposited them in his house, in the house, and he sent the men away and they departed. But he went in and stood before his master and Elisha said to him, where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, your servant went nowhere. Problem. <laughs> you work for a prophet. Okay, all right. How do you lie? You know, how do you lie? How do you, what do you do? Oh, you don't work for a prophet. You work for a prophet, all right? A non-prophet prophet, maybe. You do a lot with this passage, can't you? And how do you call in sick when your boss is a prophet? How do you lie about what you're doing outside of work and so forth? But this is the key, and this is where we're, we're going to take it back to Jesus Christ again with this crowd that's coming to him. And he said to, the, to him, did not my heart go with you? Did not my heart go with you? See, he, he, he knew entirely what was happening. He knew what was in Gehazi's heart. He knew what his motivation was. He knew where he'd gone. He knew why he did it. When the man turned from his chariot to meet you, is it a time to receive money and to receive clothes and olive groves and vineyards and sheep and oxen and male and female servants? That time is going to come. There's going to be a prophetic ministry for Israel that is going to be one of abundant blessing, but it's going to be in the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. That's going to be the one where kings will bring of their treasures, where Gentiles will come and lay these blessings at the prophet's feet. Not now. Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence as a, le a leper as white as snow. All right. So 
there's an example. There's others, but that's that was one that was fresh in my thinking because we'd been here recently with the teenagers. But we take it back now to John 2, and here's Jesus Christ, and he's not exercising omniscience in any of this. But he is a prophet, spirit-anointed, and the Father is allowing him to uh, observe the hearts of men, which otherwise only God can do. Only God can look upon the heart, but he, he blesses his prophets in various settings to view these things. And specifically, Jesus Christ is going to be assigned only one traitor. And the rest of these who would turn traitor, he is under no obligation to bring into any kind of an intimacy with himself. Only the one. Only Judas Iscariot. And keep in mind, these are the poloi, these are the crowds, these are the ones that at the three years from now are going to be shouting, crucify him, crucify him. <laughs> and when Pilate says, I see no guilt in him, shall I release Barabbas? They're going to say, or shall I release Jesus? They'll say, no, release Barabbas. What then shall I do with the Christ? Crucify him. His blood be upon us and upon our children. You see how fickle these crowds can get? <laughs> when you're playing to the crowd, very dangerous thing, playing to the crowd, because the crowd will turn, as this crowd does in three years. All right. Entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. He was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Some would assign that to omniscience. I assign that to his prophetic gift and his prophetic office. Now, Matthew chapter 10. I already told you what this verse stated, but we'll look at it so we can glean our context. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now, this is to his disciples, and he's sending them out two by two in the dispensation of Israel. But it does apply certainly as well to believers in the dispensation of the church. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. We also are sent out ones. As the Father sent me, so also send I you. In the church, we are sent out ones. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. We don't want to be shrewd to the extent that we become cosmic in our thinking. See, there's a danger in, in the excessive shrewdness that starts thinking the way the world thinks. We need to think, we need to be aware of how the world thinks, and we need to be shrewd in the sense that we're not going to be naive and, and, and gullible. Okay? I think entirely too many believers are trying to thrust themselves back into an age of innocence somehow. We're no longer under innocence. We're no longer under conscience. We're no longer under law. See, we're under grace, which means we can't, uh, we can't profess ignorance of Satan's devices. And Paul says we are not ignorant of his devices. We have to be aware of the serpent, of his methodology. Um, we better be teaching our young men, our young women, about the seductiveness of sin. They better be equipped to handle the seducers, not just the sexual seducers, but the spiritual seducers and, and all the rest. 
the snares of flattery, the snares that will uh, entrap a man, as it says, uh, those hunt- huntresses of souls that will bind a man's heart just like shackles could bind his arms. Likewise, how a young woman can be ensnared and the things that happen here. Shrewd as serpents. Doesn't mean we adopt their tactics, but we're aware of them. Because as balanced out with innocent as doves, we are still going to maintain our integrity. We're still going to utilize our own uh, methodology, our own, we're going to walk the Christian way of life, but we're going to be aware of how they function. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. There's handing over. Jesus Christ was handed over. That's the word for betrayal. And as they treated him, so they will treat us. We better get used to betrayal. There's a pastor up in Illinois that had a visit from the FBI here a while back. Why was the FBI calling him? Well, someone had reported him. Now they have questions. They interviewed him about the content of a sermon that he had back on Memorial Day. In the context of a message where he delivered about being in a different kind of war and and he was under a suspicion of promoting some kind of terrorism, he was under suspicion of promoting a, a, you know civil disobedience or rebelling, rebelling against the authority of the United States of America. See, you know, are these days going to come? When the government comes and investigates us for the things that we teach, when they start to monitor the content of our message, well, we make it real easy for them. It's called www.austinbiblechurch.com. They can listen to anything they want to listen to. And I hope they do. <laughs> they can listen to a whole year's worth of teaching. Maybe, maybe they'll get saved. Who knows? All right. But hand it over to the courts. What happens on the day when they determine that certain portions of Scripture are hate speech? And they start to limit the freedom of speech so as to be consistent with what they've defined in terms of hate speech. See, already happening in Canada, already happening in some states here in this country. Uh, Pennsylvania, for example, has a very restrictive hate speech law that, that ties the hands of First Amendment free speech. In any event, part of being shrewd, part of having your eyes open and looking at it. And... Part of not just simply drawing into your into your nearness those that would cause that kind of harm. Alright? As Jesus Christ held them at a distance, we need to have that kind of discernment as well. Now, returning back to John, um, we don't see it here necessarily played out in this chapter, but we do see it if you turn back to chapter 6. John chapter 6. And these guys, after he feeds them, he feeds the 5,000 here down through verse 14. And they're all amazed. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. But look at verse 15. Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. See, he knows their motivation. And he recognizes that this human acclaim, this human effort to try to make him king, wasn't the Father's plan. To try to go to the uh, to the cross, uh, uh, to receive the crown before the cross. Or without the cross. 
was not the design. First Advent was not, the purpose of First Advent was not the, the, uh, the crown. It was the cross. These guys, in their zeal, not in accordance with knowledge, in their false zeal, would try to promote him on a throne. And so he withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. In fact, he's uh, going to really throw him for a loop because uh, he's going to send the boats on ahead and then he's going to walk across the water. And these crowds, they're going to be really, I mean, talk about throwing somebody off your trail. They're going to say, well, we know we didn't see him get in the boat. We know he didn't get in the boat when the boat departed. So where is he? They're looking all over for him. Well, see, boy, he sure slipped those uh, pursuers, didn't he? As he walked across the water. <laughs> all right. And they're all lost. Verse 22, the crowd stood on the other side of the sea. They saw that no, there was no other small boat there except one that Jesus hadn't entered with his disciples. The disciples had gone away. So where is he? <laughs> totally lost. And then they find him on the other side. Rabbi, when did you get here? <laughs> Verse 26, Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled they loved the miracle, but they ignored the teaching. They, did not, they had the evidence of things seen, but they didn't re, have a faith reaction. They still need to, be, to believe. And that's why he tells them, you've got to eat the bread, drink the wine. You've got to place your faith in Jesus Christ. If you don't believe, that's what it says in verse 36. I say to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Observing the miracles was not sufficient. Miracles were supposed to produce the uh, credentials for the message. Placing faith in the message then was the object of all this activity. All right, so we don't know specifically what was on their heart in verse 24 of chapter 2. We just know that maybe it was it, whatever it was was inconsistent with God's plan. If it was making him king, if it was whatever it might have been. See. And chances are it was probably quite similar to what we saw in chapter 6. Maybe it was not just driving out the money changers, but how about driving out the priests? <laughs> how about driving out the Pharisees, driving out the Sadducees, driving out the Levites? Maybe that was part of their thinking. We don't know. Whatever it was, it caused him to recognize that none of these people here were going to be his disciples. He's only going to gather one traitor, and that's going to be, that's going to be Judas Iscariot. All right. Moving on to the eighth area in our Harmony of the Gospels. Teaches Nicodemus about salvation. John 3, verses 1 through 21. Teaches Nicodemus about salvation. One of the most well-known passages of the Gospel of John is right here. And of course it contains the tremendous uh, Gospel call in verse 16, for God so loved the world. And we get... Uh, a lot of salvation information here about being born again and the aspects of this. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What a statement. It didn't address coming from God. It didn't address a teacher. It didn't address the miracle. It didn't address any of that. It was, a, it was a gospel message based upon the fact that a miracle had been observed. All right? A miracle had been observed. 
Credentials have been established. You acknowledge the credentials. Here's the message. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? We have no idea how old Nicodemus is, but he's a Pharisee and he's a member of the Sanhedrin. So he's over 30, probably quite older than that. If he's a ruler of the Jews, he's probably a grandfather. He's probably in his 60s. And he's trying to figure out how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? <laughs> he's approaching this from a physical standpoint, from an earthly standpoint. What do you mean? How am I supposed to crawl back into my mom's womb? How am I supposed to be born again? And Jesus answered, truly I say to you. And that, and that just, that whole image <laughs> boggles the mind, you know, of a mom and a adult son and how how's that going to happen see especially when you got a real small mom and a real big son <laughs> you know like nan carnegie you look at john carnegie thank goodness gracious <laughs> she's so small he's so huge what a concept and christ says quit thinking in human terms truly truly i say to you unless one is born of water and the spirit he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. He uses wind. Wind is the earthly illustration of the spirit. And we have, it's the same word in the Greek and in the Hebrew. You got pneuma for spirit. You got pneuma for wind. Likewise in the Hebrew, ruch for wind and ruch for spirit. And God has designed this. You can't see it, but you can feel it. You don't know where it's coming from. You can't see it coming, but you know when it's gotten to you. you. Don't know where it's going. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? And he undoubtedly was a tremendous teacher. A ruler, an elder, he's got influence on the voting Sanhedrin we see in later chapters in John. Uh, he's going to uh, demand the body of Jesus when uh, Joseph of Arimathea comes and demands the body of Jesus. And they together, Joseph and Nicodemus, are going to bury him after and take him off the cross and bury him. A man of extreme influence. And the only way to get that kind of influence among the Pharisees is you're going to be an, an amazing teacher. See, theirs was the academic cult. And they would acknowledge a superior teacher. And they would acknowledge someone with an understanding of the Scriptures, somebody who was able to relate the Scriptures. And this was how Nicodemus rose to prominence, how all the Pharisees rose to prominence. And for Nicodemus to address Jesus as a rabbi is an extraordinary statement all on its own. They didn't hand that title out lightly. See, so the very first word out of his mouth really establishes a, a startling concept. Are you the teacher of Israel? Not just a teacher, the teacher of Israel. And his generation recognized as being eminent. If I told you earthly things, oh, let's see, verse 11. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. It got plural there all of a sudden. We're going to deal with that. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have 
eternal life. I think that's the best order on that, but you can also read whoever believes in him will have eternal life. I think the best order, whoever believes will in him have eternal life. All right, it goes on down. I've just stopped at verse 15 there. It goes on down through verse 21, and we'll outline that here for you. First of all, a Pharisee and Jewish ruler named Nicodemus came to Christ and received the greatest gospel message in the entire Bible. That's my opinion, but you're free to disagree with it. I've just enjoyed this passage more than any other in any evangelism opportunity I've ever been a part of. It spells it out and also spells the consequences of rejecting it. It also shows the lost estate, which is the default position for humanity. And so for those reasons, I enjoy John 3 more than any other passage. I mean, I can evangelize from Romans or elsewhere, but I just enjoy John 3 uh, as the first place I turn to in showing somebody about eternal life. And the consequences of rejection. He's a Pharisee and a Jewish ruler. Now, some of this is going to require some historical study and understanding that although they were under Roman dominion, even though that they were under uh, the sovereignty of the Roman Empire, and they had a Roman, uh, first of all, they had a king and then they had a Roman governor in terms of Pontius Pilate, they still were in many respects allowed to administer their own affairs. So long as they behaved, <laughs> so long as they didn't, you know, rebel or deny the taxes and so forth, uh, Pilate would let them pretty much run their own affairs. When they got rebellious, well, Pilate was pretty ruthless. All right. Before him, Herod was very ruthless. And some of the things, in fact, Pilate, not only was he ruthless, but he had a, a history with the Galileans. In particular, Pilate uh, did some very vicious things in crucifying uh, Thousands and thousands of uh, Galileans on one particular event. But they would allow the Jews to administer their own affairs. The, the Jewish body called the Sanhedrin, the Committee of Seventy, under the, the high priest. They were allowed to administer the temple. They were allowed to rule over the, the religious affairs of the people. They were even allowed to have a certain uh, degree of, uh, of military strength or police powers. They had officers. They had guards. They had soldiers that uh, were not allowed to uh, take the field. They were not allowed to march uh, throughout the, the territory, but they could stay in the confines of Jerusalem and provide order and discipline within the, the confines of the temple precincts. So they were allowed armaments in that regard. And uh, in the things, in fact, some of what uh, Pilate is kind of confused about when they kept coming to him for taking care of Jesus, he'd say, well, you've got soldiers, go deal with it. Say, and they'd have to say, well, yeah, hmm, you know, we've, we've tried that. <laughs> Our soldiers aren't doing a very good job arresting him. And we're not allowed to exercise the death penalty. You are, and we want this guy dead. See, that's why they wanted his troops instead of their own troops. The problem was every time that they sent their own troops, he had a powerful message, and some of them were, were actually listening to the message and getting saved. So we're, we're going to have a fun time with that when we get to the Passion Week, when we get to all of the attempts to arrest Christ and... Uh, and the things that happened there. Subpoint A. The Pharisees were the most powerful political party at this time. They achieved their position and status through adherence to and expert knowledge of the law. 
The Pharisees were the most powerful political party at this time. They achieved their position and status through adherence to and expert knowledge of the law. Grace Notes has an amazing handout on the Pharisees. And I would encourage you to get that. Um, read through that. It'll give you some good historical background. Likewise, the Sadducees. The circumstances surrounding the temple at this time. Um, I even thought... And we're coming up on the end of our hour. I'd even thought that we might um, take some time to go into like the Wycliffe Bible Encyclopedia or some of these references for uh, a more detailed study on the Pharisees. We can get a start on it. Uh, a detailed study here on the Pharisees. But let me just kind of give my own overview here. The, um, this period in between the Testaments featured a number of things that impact the Gospels, most of which was centered in the Maccabean era. And even though we don't accept Maccabees as scripture, the history that Maccabees relates, 1 Maccabees especially, and it's corroborated by Josephus. When you read 1 Maccabees and you read Josephus, you find out the information of what happened in between the two Testaments, in between Old Testament and New Testament. And specifically, the war for Jewish independence, throwing off Greece. Now, Daniel had prophesied Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. God had a total plan for the, the dominion of the Gentiles that was going to encompass Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. And those were the empires of Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. And so, under positive volition, believers who were waiting for God to deliver them would have seen that those stages, would have seen Babylon, Persia, Greece, and they would have been relaxed about the coming of Rome. See... But instead, what happens when Greece is having dominion over them, when Antiochus Epiphanes and the, all of the evil that he accomplished, and he did some horrible things. He, he uh, defiled their temple in Jerusalem. He came in here and he slaughtered a bunch of Jews and he moved on in here and he slaughtered a, a pig on the altar. Okay? Did some awful things. And the Jews rebelled. Alright? And the uh, particularly under... The, the family of Judas Maccabeus, the hammerer. His family, was a, he was a priest by the name of Mattathias. And that family rebelled. And lo and behold, they won. They actually defeated the Greeks and they were able to gain their own independence from Greek dominion. Now, it, it's quite interesting to view this because the pattern for... Uh, that God had laid down, went from Babylon to Persia to Greece to Rome, and then Rome was going to be shattered by the return of Jesus Christ. Rome is going to be shattered by the kingdom of heaven on earth as this stone comes down and shatters it and becomes a huge mountain and so forth. Daniel's prophecy makes no mention of rebelling against Greece and setting up your own kingdom. Okay? It's entirely a human effort operation. Then what happens when they gain their independence... What happens with the Maccabees now is that they take a throne. They set themselves up as not only priests, but a king. All right? And they're not from the tribe of Judah. They're priests. They're from the tribe of Levi. And so when this line of kings comes in and makes themselves kings, all right, and Judas gets killed and then his brother, and I'm forgetting some of these names now, but, and then their son, this becomes what's called the Hasmonean dynasty. All right? They're priests functioning as kings. Now, in the process of that, a group of Bible scholars 
who were very heroic in the war, unbelievable in their exploits. They, they were faithful to God. They were, um, they were incensed by the evil of the Greeks. They fought with Mac- the Maccabees. They were a part of this force that, that really did some great things for the people. Well, they started to see this kingdom get set up, and they said, wait a minute. The throne belongs to the son of David. The throne belongs to the tribe of Judah. Specifically, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the son of David, is to sit on the throne, not a priest. And so they then separated, Faras means to separate, they then separated from the Hasmoneans to say, wait a minute, you can't rule as a king. And this is where we have the Pharisees to this day, to this point now, the separated ones, the ones that were going to be faithful to the text. Faithful to the text. Okay? And so, it's interesting, and and the more and more this line of priest-kings became more and more corrupt, on through the years, even many of them wouldn't even be legitimate priests because Roman emperors would come in, uh, like um, uh, Pompey when he conquered Jerusalem, uh, or Herod in his administration. He would freely remove a high priest and put his own high priest in there. See, well, how legitimate is that? Whether or not he was Jewish, whether or not he was Levitical, see, just function as a high priest. So. As, as the priestly line declined and fell under corruption and politics and all the rest of the evil that it did, the Pharisees shone purer and purer, brighter and brighter. The people began to look to the Pharisees and their Bible knowledge, the way that they could teach the law, the way that they would stay holy before the Lord, and they would view the Sadducees and the priests as just being corrupt. So this is kind of a bit of the background here, and we'll do more with it. In fact, I'll see if I can print off one of the Grace Notes handouts and some of the things there. But we we need to understand that the base of the Pharisees' power was not in their priesthood. They had no priesthood. It was kind of like Jesus Christ. He wasn't a Levite. But whereas he obtains preeminence by the power of an indestructible life and he has his priesthood vested upon him, they achieved their preeminence not on the basis of physical birth, but on the basis of human effort on the basis of their legalism, on the basis of a religion they structured, which was entirely centered on legalism, keeping a law that they crafted and molded and, 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 and uh, produced for their own ends, if that makes sense. And so when this man comes, when this Nicodemus comes, a, a ruler of the Jews, not just a Pharisee, but a ruler, this guy is like what Paul describes himself, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, a Hebrew of the Hebrew, as to the law, perfect. There would be, there is no accusation can be laid against Nicodemus as far as failing to keep the law. He'd, he'd kept it all in human terms, in earthly terms. At least so far as the Pharisee law was concerned. All right. Last details here, subpoint B, Nicodemus. The name itself says it all. It's not even a, a Jewish name. It's a Greek name. Conqueror of the people. Nikos and Demos. The other name, Nicholas, likewise means conqueror of the people. Laos in terms of laity. That's why the Nicolaitans are such an evil sect in terms of establishing a priesthood that dominates over the people, the Nicolaitans. The Nicodemus, similar term, only it's Demos rather than Laos, conqueror of the people. Demos in terms of democracy. So... 
his name kind of summarizes what all of the Pharisees were about. Ruling the people. Through their religion, through their system. See, the law of Moses said, don't work on the Sabbath. But the law of the Pharisees said, well, come to us and we'll tell you what constitutes work. We'll paint the fine line. We'll give you the fine print. See, is this work or is this not work? How much of this can be done without being work? See, you can pull your ox out of the pit and that's not work. Okay, but don't plow with them because that is work. See, and they took the law of Moses and they exploded it to a thousand times what it had ever been with their own laws, their own regulations, their own stipulations. How far can you walk? What's a Sabbath day's journey? See, um, all sorts of stipulations. And they turned the law into their own beast, into their own vehicle for controlling the people. To where Jesus Christ shows up. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. And he doesn't even recognize the Sabbath. And what they turned it into. They said, you're breaking our Sabbath. He says, wait a minute. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. (laughs) He says, slow down now. The Sabbath was given for man, not man for the Sabbath. But you see what they had done? By perverting and twisting and adding all these rules and all these controls. Legalism is a horrible beast. Ruling the people. It became their means by which they could rule. Point C, he was a ruler of the Jews. Not only a Pharisee, but a voting member of the Sanhedrin. A ruler of the Jews. Not only a Pharisee, but a voting member of the Sanhedrin. We see this in John chapter 7. They're having these internal deliberations. And there's even a division among them. It says in verse 43, And some wanted to seize him, and no one laid hands on him. And even their officers are falling short. And the Pharisees say, why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. They never heard teaching like that. Realize what an insult that is, because who are they talking to? They're teachers. (laughs) They're talking to their own Bible teachers saying, we never heard teaching like this. All right. The Pharisee then answered them, You've not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But see, Nicodemus speaks up in verse 50. He who came to him before, being one of them, said to him, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? So he says, This is an illegal proceeding. We have to have him present in order to pass judgment. In any event, we will come back to this and deal with Pharisees, uh, with Nicodemus' understanding and with uh, the aspect of how do you have all this knowledge and you don't understand regeneration? You have all this factual knowledge and yet you're not born again. He had no framework to understand the second birth. And we'll deal with this. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness, for your mercy, love, and grace. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.